We are at the end of uh, chapter 2 in our study of the book of Acts. We've uh, taken quite a bit of time on this chapter, uh, which I, I think is important to do that. It's one of the most important chapters in the New Testament because of, well, a number of things, but primarily, as you know, this is uh, the Holy Spirit <clears throat> coming upon the 120 there in Jerusalem and uh, fulfilling the new covenant promises. It's just a lot theologically it's important. And then the other aspect of the chapter is uh, the Apostle Peter's marvelous sermon, which we spent quite a bit of time, almost two full hours on, uh, including last week. <clears throat> Verse 37 uh, is in a, in a way where I want to pick up, but just maybe review in verse 36, this kind of the closing sentence, if you will, of Peter's sermon, that all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, meaning Jesus, which is what he had been referring to in the previous long paragraph, both Lord, and that term in Greek is kurios, which is the sovereign Lord of the universe, and Christ, which as you know, is the Greek term for the Hebrew term Messiah. So, I mean, just dissect that carefully. Peter's saying something profound there. That because he is exalted at the right hand of the Father, which is what Psalm 110 states, and Peter just quoted that, because he is now the exalted one, finishing his work, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. God has made him kurios, sovereign Lord and the Messiah, this Jesus. And then Peter reminds them whom you crucified. So it's a, it's, it's a piercing end to this sermon. And we know, um, and I purposely use that verb piercing because verse 37 says, they were cut to the heart. I mean, this sermon um, is, is so irrefutable in its presentation of who Jesus is that it's compelling for them. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And so Peter responds, Peter speaking again for the larger group, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ because of or on account of or on the basis of the forgiveness of your sins. That is the correct way to translate that preposition. So let's just take that apart real quickly. Repent, the Greek word, I hope you don't mind me every now and then using the word, but the Greek word there is metanoia, which is a very important New Testament word. But let's make sure we understand what this means in its context. The Jewish people of Jerusalem, many of whom perhaps even had cried out for Christ's crucifixion, need to change their mind, change their understanding of who Jesus is. And so metanoia, repent there, that, that's what it's focusing on. You must turn and go in a hundred and turn 180 degrees and go in a totally different direction in how you understand Jesus. You rejected him. You called for him to be crucified. 
He is the Lord of the universe and you're Messiah. You must change. You must repent of your understanding of who he is. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay, one person said yes. The rest of you are sort of shaking your heads. But I mean, it, it's repent in the sense of them totally changing their understanding of who Jesus is. And, yes, Glenn. There's 3,000 people, right? There's more than that, actually. 3,000 will respond, but... The 3,000 that came from throughout the Mediterranean, they didn't crucify him. Right? It was, it was people who didn't Well, yeah, that's that's true. That's true. So I, I'm just trying to get my brain around is the accusing all 3,000 from having the wrong perspective, or is it um, really speaking to the aristocracy? Within? Well, not only the aristocracy, but even uh, you know many of the the mob. <laughs> the crowd who uh, were stirred up by the aristocracy to oppose Jesus. I mean, you're, you're asking a very good question. Uh, I mean, you really are. But Peter's words are directed, when he says, whom you crucified, are, in, in verse 36, are directed at the, the people who actively participated in the conspiracy to have Jesus killed. But in a larger sense, because remember, many of the Jews that were in Jerusalem at Passover, which is when Jesus was crucified, were the diaspora Jews. And many of them may have actually participated in the opposition to Jesus. I mean, you're asking a question that when you start to get very specific outside of the Sanhedrin, is very difficult to nail it down. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yes. Because we just, this is one of the very, and you're just asking a superb question, Glenn. I mean, you really are. Because there there were like, maybe this is almost too simplistic, but there were like three groups of Jews in Jerusalem in Passover through maybe Pentecost, you know, in that holiday feast time. One would be the the Galilee Jews, the Jews who had followed Jesus, because remember his Galilean ministry was about two years, had followed Jesus, and many of them followed him as he made his way from Galilee down to Jerusalem. They followed him. They were with him. Many of them probably were a part of the the group that were along the, the streets, as Jesus is in, in you know, what we call Palm Sunday, the Palm Sunday Road. If you go to Jerusalem, I can show you where that is, that route. And many of them would have been a part of that because they're excited. They've been following Jesus. They believe who he is. They believe he's the Messiah. Then you have thirdly, the, the second group would be the Sanhedrin, or your word, even the larger group, the aristocracy of, 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 of Jerusalem. And then the third large group would be all of the diaspora Jews. I mean, the population of Jerusalem swelled, not because, for the most part, of Jews coming from Galilee, but from all the other parts of the Mediterranean world, which uh, Luke had itemized for us earlier in this chapter where they all came from. So those who participated in the conspiracy to have Jesus killed by Rome would have involved not only the Sanhedrin, 
but probably many of those diaspora Jews. But how many? I have no idea. The other question I had was relative to Peter giving the sermon. Yes. How, for that period of time, how normal was that? Or were they expecting sermons from rabbis? This was not normal. This was not normal. So Peter was a businessman, right? This was a very, well, fisherman, uh, yeah. This is a very, uh, you know, it's a very public event because of, of where all this is occurring there in Jerusalem. But this, um, this kind of an event <laughs> with this large of a group of people is not the norm. I mean, that's not a normal thing to see at that spot in Jerusalem particularly. So, I mean, good questions. Really good questions. Yeah, Jim, please. I mean, in the 21st century, I read this verse. In fact, I did cause his crucifixion because of my the sin in my life that required a payment. And so while I wasn't present, I would read this. Is that an indirect reading of this? Okay, now, uh, I'm hearing your words, and I'm, I'm not sure I'm understanding the, Go through. Christ's death on the cross. Right. For the payment of sin. Yes. And so when I read this, I see that, I mean, I would read it as say, yeah, in, in fact, my sin did require a payment, so while I wasn't there physically, I'm a beneficiary of what I see what you're saying. Okay. I required that, actually. So in some respects, I did participate in the crucifixion. Well, in that very, very broad sense, which is how the Apostle Paul deals with this in his masterful book of Romans, that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. So require, exactly, exactly, exactly. Now, again, the, the audience to whom Peter is are Jews but this is going to be broadened largely by the Apostle Paul to all people. All people must understand their need because of their sin and what Christ has done to take care of that problem. And, and absolutely. So, I mean, am I understanding? And So, I mean, that's, that's absolutely correct. That is absolutely correct. Absolutely correct. Now, notice... What I, I, I made a little point of that, but in the middle of verse 38, for the forgiveness of your sins, the grammar of that is really, really important. The preposition, I think all of your translations, because I know you don't all have the same translation I use, but all of your, I'm sure, will have the preposition for, for the forgiveness of sin, okay? The word for there, it's very unusual word. Now, again, I, if you, we're doing in-depth study, so every now and then I'll share with you in-depth stuff. The Greek word that's translated for is a very unusual preposition. And so because Luke's using that preposition, the, the focus of it is with a view to on the basis of. In other words, your desire to be baptized is based on the forgiveness of sin that Jesus has provided. Do you follow me? In other words, 
your response of, of desiring to be baptized is based on your repentance in, for the Jews and their understanding who Jesus is and what he has provided for them, the forgiveness of sins because of his death, burial, and resurrection on Calvary, his cross and so on. That's what you're responding to, and that's why you want to be baptized. Do you follow me? The grammar of that is really, really important. So I don't know if I've explained it well enough, uh, Joel. Well, because otherwise you might read it, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sin. In other words, you need to repent and be baptized to be forgiven. That's right. Which is not. I mean, that's, that's the, difficult, the difficult issue of translations when you bring it into another language, how you phrase it can be easily, I guess I'll say misinterpreted <laughs> and therefore misapplied. So the word baptism uh, as a noun or baptize as a verb always means one thing, either literally or figuratively. You're identifying with something. It was used in the, in the, the uh, um, textile industry, I guess that's the way you could talk about it, in the ancient world, where you would, you would take a piece of white cloth and you would baptize it into, this is the, the verb they would use, baptizo, you baptize it into a vat of dye. And it comes out of that vat of dye identified now with a new color. Do you understand what I'm saying? That white piece of cloth has been baptized so that it's now blue or purple, or whatever the color of the dye is. So to be baptized means you are identifying with something. Uh, Paul will write in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that Israel was baptized into Moses in the Red Sea. And you think, what? Moses was holding a baptismal service in the Red Sea? Now you're supposed to laugh at that. That's supposed to be a joke. I mean, no, 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 no. What, what does that mean? That Israel was identifying with Moses as they followed him through the Red Sea. Because God said, I'm going to part the Red Sea, etc., so you walk through it. And so, you're, notice how he puts this. Baptize everybody in the name of Jesus Christ. So when you are baptized, you are identifying with Jesus Christ. It's a public identification with him. Now, for you and me, I mean, I don't doesn't matter, but I'm assuming all or most of you have been baptized. And I, when I do baptismal services, I always ask the candidates several questions. And one of the questions I always ask them, do you, you understand that in this baptism you are publicly identifying with Jesus Christ? And I mean, I want them to say yes, because that's really what this is. And in the ancient world and in a Jewish culture where they had ceremonial washings and cleansing, baptisms, if you will, to, to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, to be identifying with Jesus Christ, that was one of the most radical things you could do as a Jew in AD 33. You understand what I'm saying? I mean, to tell them you must change your mind about Jesus and understand him as Lord and Messiah, and then in his name be baptized because forgiveness of sins has been provided by him. You are publicly stating to everybody around you who are Jews 
that you now are embracing Jesus as the Messiah of Israel. I mean, now it's just one of the most radical things you could possibly imagine in AD 33. That's why today, and again, I, I, I don't know where you all are coming from, so I, I, I hope what I say makes sense. A baptismal service in 2018 in your churches should really be a meaningful service. It really should be. Because you are now saying, even if you believe in infant baptism, and the, the logic of infant baptism is the parents are now similar to circumcision in the Old Testament, which was a sign of the Old Covenant, infant baptism is now a sign of the New Covenant. My child is now in the covenant community. And we, as, my, as the child's parents and the church, are now obligated to raise this child so that when he or she comes of age, they will personally appropriate what we have done for them today. If you believe in believer's baptism, which means baptism follows the statement of faith, uh, it's the same thing. You are publicly identifying with Jesus Christ. And uh, it's, I don't know... Uh, I share some of these illustrations in many situations. I can't remember if I ever shared this with you guys, but a number of years ago, it's probably it's probably close to 25 now, 20 to 25 years ago. Our neighbor next door, uh, her father was dying of pancreatic cancer, and she wanted me to go talk to him, and so I did, and led him to Christ. And he he came to know the Lord, and uh, Peggy and I got him a living Bible which I don't know if you know what that is, a paraphrase, but it's very easy. to. Tra- he, was, he hadn't been in church since he was 10, and he came out of a Roman Catholic background. And so it was just amazing what happened. His name was Jerry. What happened in his life? He was 70, I think he was 72 or 73 years old. And so I went up and visited him quite a bit over the, the next, because he was dying. There was nothing that they could do. As you know, pancreatic cancer is often fatal. So anyway... One of my times I went to him, he said, will you baptize me? And I thought, oh, because he doesn't, he, he had no church. He had no church affiliation. And I said, this isn't quite like, you know, a funeral home or this is like, what am I going to go rent a swimming pool? Or So I said, okay, Jerry, let me get back to you. I'll, I'll have to talk to my pastor and see if he, because normally I mean, typically most churches only have baptismal services for their members, for their people. So uh, I said, let me talk to him and see if I can arrange that. So my pastor said, absolutely. And so we set it up for a Sunday morning. I mean, he is, he's very sick and he was kind of a big man. And um, so uh, it came time, his family was there. Many of them had no idea about anything dealing with Christianity. And so Jerry, you know, as, as often happens, I ask him, Jerry, tell me why you want to be baptized. What has happened in your life? So he gave a brief testimony of what had happened in him, in his life in the last several weeks. I mean, it was hardly polished. It was hardly eloquent. But I'm telling you, it was genuine. And he had tears in his eyes and so on. 
And so then, you know, after he, he gave that brief testimony, then I asked him the question, you understand your public identifying with Jesus? Yes. And so I took him and baptized him because in church practice, immersion. As I brought him up out of the water, the whole congregation exploded in applause. And I say that because that's, that's the value of baptism in, in, in our era, in our age, in our time. I mean, this isn't like the Jews where they are in AD 33. They are making a statement that we're going to make an enemy of a lot of people because they're identifying with Jesus as a Messiah. But this, this friend of mine, Jerry, who not too many weeks after I baptized him, he died. But, you know, there's a certainty this man definitely embraced Jesus Christ as a Savior. And he publicly wanted to testify to that. And I did his funeral, which was at the John Gentleman funeral home on 72nd Street, North 72nd Street. And I pulled up to the... There probably were 30 bikes there. And I don't mean little two. I'm talking about the hogs. And I thought, oh, because I knew Jerry uh, had his whole background was a pretty rough background. And so I swallowed hard. Peggy was with me. I said, oh, my goodness, honey. So it was just it was an interesting sermon, funeral service to preach at this whole bunch of bikers, all in their leather jackets and so on. But um, they heard the message. What happened to their friend Jerry? And I shared with them the importance of his baptism. He publicly identified with Christ. And uh, a lot of them, a lot of them came up to me after that little service and just said, thank you for sharing this about our buddy. So you have no idea. I have no idea what happened in the lives of those people. That was an illustration. Pardon me, it took a long time to do that. All right. Any questions about the grammar of verse 38? And then the final promise is you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Because remember, when we read back in Joel chapter, uh, earlier in this chapter where he quotes from Joel chapter 2, that the Spirit coming is for everyone. Doesn't matter your gender, doesn't matter your socioeconomic status, doesn't matter your age. And so this is just an important reaffirmation that the entire salvation dynamic involves the Holy Spirit as well. Verse 39, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone. Again, I mean, notice, notice the compelling, the compelling logic of what has happened with the death, burial, resurrection, ascension of Jesus, and the coming of the Spirit. It is a whole new order now. It is for everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So this leads to the logic that the rest, remember Acts 1.8, you start in Jerusalem, and Judea, Samaria, the uttermost, it's starting the logic of what's going to happen to this gospel message. It's for everyone. And so Peter, um, it's an amazing sentence. It, this is an amazing sentence to utter in this crowd of Jewish people. Verse 40, And with many other words he bore witness. In other words, Luke has only given us a synopsis of what Peter said. 
With many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. By the way, that phrase, crooked generation, is used in the prophets of the Old Testament. Major and minor prophets. So they would have understood that. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day 3,000 souls. So um, I think we talked about that last week, that um, there there's no difficulty understanding how they could baptize that many people. Didn't we talk about that last week? I thought we did, yeah. So anyway, uh, it's just a, it's an absolutely amazing uh, response to Peter's sermon. Way beyond, I'm sure, way beyond anything that he or the other apostles anticipated. You know, this, this was just such a big deal. It knocked their socks off. Absolutely. I mean, it was a really big deal. They just didn't think that way. Prior to that. That's right. This is really a big so deal. Did cut it quick. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's... It's, I, it's, it's not an encouragement to us uh, to share the targets. When these bikers, he came for a while. And all can hear the message. Mm-hmm. And that's just a tremendous really thing that we can mm-hmm. trust mm-hmm. as we share gospel wherever that's right. we are. That's right. It is for everyone. It is for everyone. All right. Now, what Luke does this at the end of chapter 2. Luke will do this throughout the book of Acts. He gives us a pithy summary of what's happening to the church. And so in verse 42 through the end of the chapter, verse 47, you have... um, it's like a summary of, well, what's, what's the Jerusalem church like now? So remember, the first church is the church in Jerusalem. And undoubtedly, there were multiple house churches. I think we've talked about that before, how the early church was organized. But anyway, and so Luke is just giving us like a synopsis. Okay, what's happening? Now, these 3,000 people that come to faith, and 120 that were the earlier group, and the 11 and all that... What's, what's happening here? What's it look like? And they were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayers. So community life in the Jerusalem church was characterized by four items. The teaching of the apostles. Now again, it is almost without even saying, but there were multiple house churches. There isn't the Jerusalem church, you know, just south of Temple Mount. You know, and it wasn't a church. There are churches, but you speak, you know, as a collective noun, the Jerusalem church. And the apostles undeniably would have had various responsibilities over these house churches. And so devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. It is not a coincidence that that's item number one. Sound doctrine produces godly living. And so these apostles' responsibility is to show all the Old Testament prophetic connections being fulfilled in Jesus. Because they're not preaching from Acts or Revelation or Hebrews. Those books haven't been written. This is AD 33. This is May 
of AD 33 now. I mean, this is only weeks after Jesus. So what are they teaching? They're teaching the prophetic fulfillment of the Old Testament in Jesus. And the fellowship. The Greek word there is koinonia. They are fellowshipping together. Breaking bread. That can mean and probably does mean just sharing meals together. It may also, of course, involve the Lord's table. And prayers. They're praying together. And so Luke just gives us a very significant, pithy, short, one-sentence summary of what is this fellowship doing now? They gather to hear the apostles teach. They gather for koinonia, for fellowship, sharing of meals, probably the Lord's table, and prayer. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. And all who believed were together, had things in common. Now, this isn't Christian socialism, Christian communism. It's just, this is a voluntary sharing. Because listen, as these people come to faith in Christ, and these are all Jews right now, they're, they're now going to be somewhat ostracized. They're, they're not going to be accepted. And so now the need is greater because they are, because of their faith, and now they've, in, in many cases, you know, that can even happen today, in many situations, your parents, if you come to faith in Christ and you're an Orthodox Jew, they disown you. They don't want anything to do with you. And so it would not be unusual for this to happen. So how they mean, in verse 45 says, they're selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Because to come to faith in Christ and publicly identify with Christ as a Jew in Jerusalem in AD 33, you're going to pay a price for that. You may lose your job. Your family may disown you. I mean, these are the, Luke doesn't go into it, but we just know that. And so this voluntary, this voluntary selling of possessions to meet human needs. Verse 46, and day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. The Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now here Luke doesn't tell us a number. He just says day by day the church in Jerusalem is growing. This is a caring, sharing community of believers. Internal fellowship, intimacy, focusing on the word of God. Now you'll see this as we go through the book of Acts. Peter, uh, sorry, uh, Luke will do this occasionally. He'll give us a quick summary of what's happening to the church. What's happening to the church? What's happening to the church? This is the first of many. Got it? Yes, Glenn. Yes. That had to absolutely freak out the temple that they're not going to the rabbi, they're not going to the temple, they're worshiping us. Absolutely. 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 I mean, this is you, you. This is fairly familiar to us because you know we've read and studied the Book of Acts. But you, you are absolutely right, Freakum. This is such. This is so radically different than anything else you would see in AD thirty-three. And it's just it's an amazing demonstration of what God is doing when Jesus says, "I will build my church." 
You start in Jerusalem and go to Judea, Samaria, and this is where it starts. So that's what Luke is doing here. She's giving us an account of the founding and now, as he's commented, the growth of the Jerusalem church. Jim, how does modern-day Jewish people deal with their wrongdoing, sin, the Orthodox Jew today? We know know Christ died for ours. Uh, How does the modern-day Orthodox Jew deal with his wrongdoings, sin? That's one of the real... um, the real struggles of modern-day Orthodox Judaism. (laughs) Because there's no temple, there are no sacrifices, there's no priesthood and all of that. Um, It's largely, okay, I have sinned, God, I confess that I have sinned, and I promise not to do it again. I mean, the, the Psalms, the prophets, talk a great deal about sin. You can't ignore that. It's all through the Bible, all through the Old Testament, because obviously they don't read the New Testament. And it's the kind of um, it's the kind of mindset, what I must do now is I must work harder in pursuing my faith of Judaism to please God, because I've displeased him. So what does work harder mean? I'm going to be more meticulous in keeping the commandments. I'm going to be more meticulous in keeping the Sabbath. I'm going to be more meticulous in my kosher diet. I mean, it's it's I'm not doing enough. And so when I when I do that, which I think is displeasing to God, I um, I promise not to do it again, and I'm going to work harder, God. I'll work harder now. I mean, it's. I'm not sure any Jew, uh, Orthodox Jew, would say it quite the way I just said it, but that's in effect what they're doing. It's a works righteousness. I've got to work harder in pursuing my keeping of the Ten Commandments and the Sabbath and all my rabbi is telling me I must do. Because if I don't, I'm displeasing God. Like back the traditional old Jewish law. Exactly. 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 Um, and, and I have to be careful hot because I, I want to. Have any of you seen uh, Fiddler on the Roof? Yeah, I'm, I'm sure. You know Fiddler on the Roof, that yeah. musical? Okay. If you, if you listen, d- despite all the humor and the singing and all the stuff that's a part of that wonderful musical, if you listen carefully to the language of Tevia, he really represents the dilemma of the Jewish person. Without the temple, without sacrifice, without priesthood, and so on. For the most part, it all boils down. What's the favorite word that keeps popping up throughout the musical? Tradition. I really don't know why I do it this way, but for 4,000 years, well, no, for 3,500 years, we've done it that way. So I'm going to keep doing it that way. And it's not really understanding what it means, not understanding it's the richness of the heritage. I just do it. 
because Tevye is just interested in tradition. But as you, if you know, he has four daughters. Isn't it four or is it three? Is it wedding? Every one of them is, is going to live outside of tradition. You know, every one of them makes a decision on marrying somebody that's outside of tradition and so on. And the one that he will not forgive is the one who decides to marry a Gentile. And he disowns her. He will have nothing to do with her. And when they're forced to leave that village in Russia, uh, they go one way and they never see her again. So uh, that's a, it's a complicated answer to your question, but that's essentially, it's essentially where they're at. And they struggle immensely with consistency and trying to really, that's why the most important, if you're an Orthodox Jew, the most important person in your life is your rabbi. Now, we don't have any Orthodox congregations in Omaha, so I can't illustrate it that way. But um, the, the rabbi tells you, tells you what the law means for your life. And so um, the rabbi then explains to you when and where you can use your cell phone, uh, and whether or not you can use your cell phone on the Sabbath, and I mean just all of those things, because modern technology has thrown much of Jewish tradition in the wind. It's very hard for them to be consistent when it comes to how they observe the Sabbath with all this modern technology. Because if I pick up my cell phone and I dial in or I check my, t- am I working? Because in, in the, the Orthodox Jew, you cannot use an elevator on the Sabbath. That's work. So, I mean, it's just that kind of, it, it, and I think you would agree this spirit in which I'm using this word, but that's ludicrous. That's a ludicrous application of God's holy law. But that's, anyway. You were going to ask. I was just thinking about um, <clears throat> actual forgiveness and a ritualistic forgiveness by going through a certain procedure. Um, That's a good way to put it, ritualistic forgiveness. That here, we have these people who are part recognizing in their spirit that they have, in fact, crucified their Messiah. And that's why they are coming to him. And and this is felt spiritually within their being, their spiritual beings. Whereas the, the traditional Jew that we're talking about, the, the Orthodox Jew, he goes through a procedure perhaps of forgiveness, but Internally, is, how does that? I, I don't see how that can register in the spirit, if in fact it isn't forgiveness from God, but it's more forgiveness within the concept of the Jewish faith. Rabbi. Well, I think the the greatest challenge in approaching God in that way. What I do merits favor with him is you have no assurance you've done enough. 
So whether you're talking about a Muslim or a Hindu or a Jew in, in Orthodox Judaism, you have no assurance that you've done enough or that I've done it perfectly. That I've done, and so you're always, you're always hanging, if you're very serious about it, always hanging over you is, maybe I forgot to do something, or maybe I didn't do it right. So God is really displeased with me. And, and I say that because if you any, know anything about the um, agony of Martin Luther before he came to faith in Christ, that he took seriously what the church was saying to him. That salvation is a cooperative effort between man and God, and you have to do. God will infuse a little grace to you, infuse, and you must then work. And Luther would say, I haven't done enough. The, 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 the German word is Anfechtung. And that's a great, that's where he Anfechtung is impossible to translate from German into English, but it's an overwhelming anxiety. And that was Luther. He, he just, until he came to faith in Christ and really understood what Christ had done for him, he had no peace and no assurance and no certainty that he'd ever done enough. And he'd be in the confessional, so I'm just reading a book right now, but it's comparing him and Erasmus, don't worry about who he is, but anyway, just commenting on how these two individuals dealt with sin in their life. And for until Luther came to faith in Christ, he was in agony over his sin. He would be in the confessional in that Augustinian monastery where he served for a while. He was, sometimes he was in that confessional for four hours. Every 24 hours, they were to go to the confessional. Can you imagine? 24 hours, and four of those 24 hours, he's in a confessional confessing the sin he did the last 20 hours. And he left, he writes this, he left, he forgot something, and all his peace, and all of his certainty was lost. Is that how Jesus wants you to live? Romans 8.1 is one of the most important verses in the Bible. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Christ paid it all. It's by grace through faith you're saved, not of works, lest any man should boast. And so any worldview or any religion that puts the onus on you to merit the favor of God, I'll use a strong word, is heretical. Because you're never going to do it. Never. And that's that amazing, amazing truth of biblical Christianity is Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. The words of an old hymn. Now in answering Fred's question, I just preached a sermon. I'm sorry. Let's move into chapter 3. Let's move into chapter 3. Now what I would like to do and I, this is it tells us now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer and they came to the beautiful gate. Now, what I thought I would do here, and I don't... I'm going to show you a photograph. I'm going to walk around and show you a photograph of Temple Mount today, and I'm going to show you an overlay. This is Temple Mount today. It's 39 acres, okay? This is the Dome of the Rock, which is most famous, and this is the al okay? This gate right here, you can see this is the whole eastern wall. This gate is called the Eastern Gate. 
This is probably what the text is referring to when it says the beautiful gate. Okay, so this is just Temple Mount today. You, you all seen pictures of this, okay? 39 acres, very unusual, not perfect rectangle. This is the eastern gate right here, okay? This is Temple Mount today. This is the eastern gate. Probably the beautiful gate that is being referred to in chapter 3. This is Temple Mount today, 39 acres. Here's the gate, eastern gate. As you know, there's no temple there. The temple was destroyed. This is it, 39 acres. It's the eastern gate. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to put an overlay. This is what the temple would have looked like at the time of Acts 3. Here is that gate, and this is the temple, okay? This is the gate, probably the beautiful gate. And this is called Solomon's Portico. We're going to see that referred to in the text. Now, that's not one of the gates into Jerusalem, am I right? No, it's going to be a gate into the temple. Just at the, yeah, that's correct. Well, actually, you would get you, you would get into Jerusalem too. Yeah, but this is the gate. This and the southern gate down here, specifically that's the temple. This is what it would look like in Acts three. Here's the temple. This is the gate. And this is Solomon's portico right here. We're going to read about that. This is that same. This is the temple. Temple here. Here's that eastern gate. That what? This is the gate right here. This is the gate. This is that bridge. Yeah. This is the bridge. Is it sealed up? Yeah, that's it. It's sealed up today. That's correct. A Muslim caliph sealed it up and put a a, a Muslim. And this was just open space? This is all open space. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This again is the gate. This is a bridge. They had constructed a bridge, which is what David was asking, from this Mount of Olives would be over here. This is looking from the west. But the east Mount of Olives over here. And this was the bridge, because this is a very deep valley. This is Kidman. Where is Solomon's portico? Solomon's portico is all along here. Oh. This is Solomon's portico. This is what it looks like today. Here's the gate. This is the temple. Okay. And this is Solomon's portico all along the east side. Oh. And this is again, this is the temple. Here's the gate. I just wish we could get on a plane now. And thank you. We're all ready, Jim. You know that, right? We're waiting for you to say, okay. <laughs> My next yeah. trip is... Field X. trip. <laughs> That's another conversation. Keep going. Verse 1. And Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, which would be 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Now, uh, just think about this for a minute. Peter and John are going to the temple, the heart of Judaism. So, you know, what are they doing there? They're giving a witness as to who Jesus is in the heart of Judaism. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they had laid daily at the gate of the temple. That is called the beautiful gate. Again, probably the eastern gate that I pointed out. And, and Rob showed up. He, he got a picture on his phone. That gate is walled up today. A Muslim caliph walled it up centuries ago and put a Muslim temp, uh, uh, cemetery in front of it because he'd heard that Messiah is going to come back and go through that gate 
And no Jew would ever walk over a uh, um, cemetery. So just an interesting piece of historical. It has nothing to do with this text. So, daily laid at the gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. So, in all likelihood, if this man has been lame from birth and was at the gate asking alms, is this the first time he was there? Nah, it's doubtful. This was probably, it says he was, it's, it's whom they laid, that's passive voice. Somebody's laying in there, relatives, friends, we don't know. This is how he, this is how he existed. You know what alms are, don't you? Alms giving to the poor. Verse 3, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. Alms for the poor, and something like that. Verse 4, Peter directed his gaze at him. That is a great translation. That is a great translation. Directed his gaze at him. It's not a, you know, kind of temporary look. He gazed and he stared at him and said, look at us. Because typically, I mean, in, in, in the Middle East today, I mean, there are beggars, people asking for alms everywhere. <laughs> You'd see them everywhere. And most of the time, they don't, they, their head is never up. They never, they're never looking like this. You know, they're just sitting there with their little cup. And so this man probably is hunched over. I'm just guessing, but that's probably what. And so John, or Peter, John says, Peter says, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus of Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. Now, remember, in the pictures I showed you there, I mean, this is the, 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 the temple is the most open space in Jerusalem. There is no more open space in Jerusalem. Huge, 39 acres. An enormous, just people everywhere. And so this guy who's been laying for birth probably days, weeks, months, years, he's been laid there every day asking for alms. And so at least several dozen, maybe more, people just around this very popular spot, the beautiful gate, the main way to enter the temple, they hear this dialogue. And they hear Peter say, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand, raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk. And he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Those phrases, walking and leaping, are used in Isaiah 35 of what Messiah will do. As he heals the sick. Well, this is a messianic miracle. When my kids were in Sunday school, and maybe some of yours, you might remember this, they learned a song. He went walking and leaping and praising God, walking and leaping. Do any of you remember that with your kids? Nobody does. Okay. <laughs> well, anyway, my kids learned that song. And if Peggy were here, she would sing it better than I do. 
Verse 9, And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Jesus is working through his disciples to do messianic miracles to bring Jews to faith. There is no explanation for what just happened to this man. This guy was one, just the the language of verse 9 and 10, this is a guy that everyone recognized him because they saw him every day at the beautiful gate. Now he's running around Temple Mount, leaping and praying. He's not just walking, he's leaping. You know what leaping is, don't you? And he's, yeah. So something has happened. And so what is going to happen is Peter is going to launch into another sermon. Verse 11. While he clung to Peter and John. That's a great translation. I mean, he doesn't want to leave their side. He owes everything to them. He's clinging to them. All the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon. And that I pointed that out. That's, that's portico. It's like a walkway, the hallway along the eastern side, as, as I said here. This whole eastern side is called Solomon's portico. So, you know, it's just a huge crowd of throngs of them. When they saw it, and when he saw it, meaning the crowd coming, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we made him walk? Now I want you to notice verse 13. Peter carefully chooses his words. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers. Now, you're a Jew. It's AD, it's May something, AD 33. And you hear somebody on the temple at Solomon's portico along that eastern side speaking of the God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob. What kind of language is that? Jewish. It's the language of the covenant, isn't it? This is the Abrahamic covenant. This is the language, our God, our covenant-making, covenant-keeping God, the God who made all those promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who faithfully said, that through you, Abraham, all people will be blessed. The God of Jacob, the God whom, whom God, God broke him in Genesis 32, of all self-sufficiency manipulation, changed his name to Israel. The God of our fathers glorified his servant, Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate, when he had decided to release him, but you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted, and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. Now, Peter, he did this earlier in the Pentecost sermon, but I want you to notice something about these verses. These are words you ought to underline or put a check or something. 
the titles Peter chooses to use in these verses, verse 13, 14, and 15. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The servant Jesus. Servant, to choose that term, servant Jesus, is to refer to all the servant songs of Isaiah. Isaiah 40 through 66. There are 66 chapters in the book. From chapter 40 through 66, there are five servant songs. The servant of Yahweh will do this. The servant of Yahweh will do this. So when a Jew in AD 33 hears the title servant, they're thinking, oh, Isaiah. And the most important of the servant songs is Isaiah 53, which talks of the Messiah, the servant dying for his people. Secondly, or thirdly, look in verse 14. The holy and righteous one. That is a title for God out of the Old Testament. It is all over the Old Testament. It's a messianic term. It's used in all the messianic prophecies of the Old Testament to refer to the Messiah, the holy and righteous one of God. And finally, notice in verse 15, the fourth and final title the author of life. It's interesting. Peter is zeroing in on Jesus not only being the servant of the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God, the holy and righteous one. He's also the creator and author of life. Referring to Jesus. Those two verses, 13 and 14, are loaded with theology. But the theology of the Old Testament, the theology of the Old Testament presentation and understanding of who God is. He's a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. His servant, the Messiah, will die for his people's sin. He's the holy and righteous one who will manifest and show God's true character. And he's also the author of life. That is an amazing synopsis of the theology of the Old Testament. Now, I know we don't get excited about biblical truth in this class, but those two verses just summarize the power in the name of Jesus. This is who he is. And Peter says, whom God raised for the dead, to this we are witnesses. Who's the we? Well, at least the apostles, at least the eleven. We saw this. We saw him crucified. We saw him resurrected. We spent 40 days with him after he was is resurrected. We're witnesses to this. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. The faith that is through Jesus has given this the man has given the man this health in the presence of you all. Now whose faith? The faith that Peter exhibited in calling upon this man to rise up and walk. The faith that Peter exhibited is what he's talking about. His faith 
in the Messiah Jesus, the servant of Yahweh, the holy and righteous one, the author of life. It is faith in him. He raised him. He's given him the power and ability to walk. This would have been, uh, this is again, this is one of these miracles, messianic miracles. This is one of those miracles that would have drawn everybody's attention. Because they all had seen this guy at the beautiful gate. And now they see him running around Temple Mount, <laughs> leaping and praising the Lord. It's a, it's, if I say messianic miracle, you know what I mean by that? This is a miracle that draws attention to the truth about Jesus as the Messiah of Israel, insisting upon a response. This miracle demands a response. And not only for you and me that are reading it 2,000 years later, but for the people who saw this in AD 33. This demands a response. You can't ignore this. So what are you going to do with this? And it causes Peter to launch into a fantastic sermon, which, if you want to hear about this sermon, come back next week. That's ideal. I hadn't planned to end right there, but it's the perfect way to end. So tomorrow we will deal with this. It's a, another majestic sermon, incredible sermon to Peter, and what he um, and, and and how he lays this out and how he presents this. It's just, uh, it's amazing. But that's going to get him in trouble because chapter 4, Peter and John have to go before the Sanhedrin. Because the Sanhedrin isn't really interested in these kind of miracles. So anyway. All right, I'm going to pray and then we've got to get out of here. Thank you, Lord, for a, a good study this day. I, it's one of my favorite sections, Peter's great sermon. And then this incredible miracle on the east side of Temple Mount, near the beautiful gate, along Solomon's portico. We know exactly where this happened. Um, it caused an enormous uproar in Jerusalem because a man that had been lame from birth is running around Temple Mount, leaping and praising you, dear Lord. And Peter's words draw the attention of these crowds in Temple Mount using Old Testament language and titles of God to draw their attention to Jesus as the Messiah. It demanded a response. And we're going to see thousands more going to come to faith because of it. So as we go our separate ways, dear Lord, dismiss us with your blessing. Help us to be good representatives of you in what we say and what we do. To the glory of your Son, we pray. Amen. Amen. See you next week.